Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, my guest is Ryan Frederick. Ryan is a founder and product person at heart. He has helped companies grow from inception to viability through to sustainability. During the evolution of these companies, Ryan has served on company boards and been instrumental in capitalization activities. Ryan is an active angel investor, mentors, and advises entrepreneurs and startups, as well as corporate innovation leaders. He launched a nonprofit workforce development program to train underemployed adults on digital skills called IC Stars. He's also an author and frequent speaker. Ryan and welcome to the show. Anthony, thanks for having me. appreciate it. So why don't I gave you a little bio, um, but uh, can you give our listeners a, a little bit more about your background and how you use data in doing what you do? <clears throat> yeah, it, it, as alluded to in the bio, I'm really a product person, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, because when you start a company, you're 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 doing that through a product or service that, you know, solves a problem for people in a, in a way that um, they care about. So I like building products. I like creating things. Um, I'm a developer by training. And then moved over to the business side as part of starting companies. Uh, but I still really like uh, building things. And so software is is near and dear to my heart. And, and I always uh, I look at data and software sort of inexorably linked because software is really plumbing for data. And, and when you think about it that way, it makes it a little bit more. Um, I don't know, both visual and that you can you can sort of literally see right so, uh, uh, software now moving data around, right, you know, to to solve some problem and add some value. And then you can sort of look at data as water. Right. And I think there's a lot of correlations between software being plumbing for data and data being water. Yeah, I, I like that analogy. And I've, at times I've taken a similar analogy to uh, unreasonable extents. I often joke with my team. It's like at, at four o'clock in the afternoon when Anthony starts doing analogies on the fly, you never know what's going to happen. And some are just real bombs and some of them actually work pretty well. But I think about like if we take the analogy of of pipes like in a house and you think about like the the plumbing and even software, we're, we're talking about like the trades and, and connecting things and making core functionality happen. But the art behind it and how people take that and run with it from an architecture point of view or from a um, you know artistic and just finishing point of view, that's where the business comes into its own. Like plumbing, you can't tell what the house looks like just by looking at the plumbing, but you know if that plumbing's broken, you're going to know some things about the house as a whole, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, where there's you know, a good corollary there is, you know, in, in a, a plumbing water situation, Right, where we mostly interact with plumbing and with water is at the points of consumption, mm -hmm. right? Uh, on the front of our fridges or when we need to get ice, or, you know, from our fridge or from our faucets and our showers, et cetera. I think the same thing is true with data, mm -hmm. except we lose we, we lose focus on the consumption piece of data um, too often because we, we get caught up in the, the actual piping, right, in the infrastructure and the tools of data. And then we lose sight of the consumption of the data because there are still way too many bad reports, way too, way too many convoluted dashboards, right, that never really drill down into saying, why do we need the data? 
what questions are we trying to answer with the data? And then how are we going to distribute and consume that data to those ends, right? So I, I think that very much like plumbing in a house, we we sort of take the consumption piece for granted. Well, yeah, it, it brings up a, a thought just in terms of like where, um, you know, people lose their way sometimes on how that data should be used or what it's good for. And like, what is the, what are the appropriate use the, the kind of fundamental components of data quality? Like, is this data suitable for what I want to do with it? And I think back, I, in, in my, my younger days, I worked at a, a country club. I was in, in high school and at that country club, we had like a big outing. There was a corporate outing there. And my job was to make lemonade for all of the people there at the outing. Well, in my brilliance, I was I was creating the, the, there was like this packet of, of powder and we dump it into a barrel and you fill it up with water. And I'm like, why am I going to drive all the way back to the main clubhouse to fill up the, the lemonade when I could get the water from our um, little stand out in the middle of the course? Only to find out later, once I had done this and people started drinking the lemonade, that that actually was non potable water that I had filled up the lemonade with and nobody got sick or anything. We quickly adjusted it, but there was a data quality there taking our analogy to extremes. There was a data quality problem that I had in taking that water, just assuming, Hey, I could do what I want with it. Here's water. It's coming out of a spigot. I can fill up this lemonade and have people drink it. Big mistake. And we see that with data constantly is that people just get it out of the tap and assume they can do whatever they want with it. And that's just not always true. Yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, just like real water data can become toxic, right? Mm-hmm. Because if water is allowed to sit, right, and, and, and it develops bacteria in the water, etc., it's not potable, you shouldn't drink it, you shouldn't consume it. The same is true with data, right? Mm-hmm. If data is old, or if it's inappropriate to answer the question that you're trying to ask, etc., you could be relying on, you could be consuming toxic data that now is not going to serve your purpose, and actually, in the end, might do more harm than good. So, yeah, I think there's, I think that's another corollary between you know our you know working analogy of you know data and water you know be, being very close cousins, right? And and so and and knowing your background is is really around creating software and, and products. And, and being a founder. And, and we want to spend most of our time today talking more about that um, and, and, and you know, thinking about how it, it connects to and uses the data um, and, and, you know, relies on some of these fundamentals that we've just been chatting about. Um, you know, I would like to understand, you know, from from your perspective, like we, we, we think I, and I think that the, the listening audience here probably has some understanding. We've talked about this in previous episodes around, you know, how do you make data suitable for use and how do you, you know, go through some of that. And, and there's definitely, um, you know, more to, to talk about there, but, but that's not for today. What I want to understand is when you're creating a product and you recognize that, Hey, you're, you're sourcing data through it. You're using it to create, um, applications and a, and a user experience and provide some sort of value to, uh, the folks that are going to use that software. You know, how do you do that? Like you see so many just bad software out there and bad products. And I think we can all just immediately off the top of our head, think about, Oh, this thing like that I've had to use or I encountered, like, how do they even make something so bad? But it's not easy. So why in your mind, why is creating successful products so hard? Why is this so difficult to do well, do well? Yeah. I think there's three things that, that you contribute to software products being bad built that are bad and, and largely unsuccessful. 
the first one is a lack of problem understanding. Mm. Uh, th- th- I don't think that you can build a successful, valuable product unless you understand the problem that you're trying to solve with that piece of software at an expert level. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, what an expert level means is that you have to understand the problem better than your customers and your users do. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, how are you going to expect to, to communicate the value of the product, right? Vis-a-vis the problem, if you don't understand the problem at least as well as they do, if not better. Right. Um, I think another thing is that we often do validation in the wrong way around understanding the problem and then our potential product against the problem. Most user validation happens in the positive. And it's questions like, Tell me what you like about us. Tell me how this is going to be valuable for you. Tell me how you're going to use it. Tell me how this is going to change your, you know, change your 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 life or your process or your job. When mo- when validation really should be positioned in the negative, it, we should ask things like, "Tell me why this won't add value for you. Tell me why you won't use it. Tell me why this won't solve your problem." Because then you get real honest feedback. Mm-hmm. Too many products these days are still built on false positives because the validation around the problem and the product was done too leaning too toward far toward the positive and not enough toward the negative. Right. Uh, you know, and, and then, you know, we, we don't. And then the third thing is, and, and this is just because it's it's messy and humans are complicated. We don't spend enough time iterating with users intimately enough on the first versions of the product because we, we don't want them to tell us that what we built was wrong or bad or we approached it improperly, right? So we, we, we might start out talking to users, but it's amazing to me how quickly as product builders, we drift away from our users. And the moment that we feel like we can, we will. Yeah, I was just saying, I'm like, how illogical is that? Because it's like, I mean, and I get it's human nature to like, just want that confirmation bias of like, tell me it's good, but, but it's like, just try not to look at some of the, the hard truths of where it may not have been created as well. But you think about it, it's like, I always want to know that as early as possible. I always want to make those adjustments as soon as I possibly can, because I know six months from now, it's going to be way more costly to learn it the hard way when either nobody buys it or the reviews are terrible and in this world of you know where we claim to be data driven and we claim to like you know have a richness of like reviews and stuff out there but for the most part what i see now we have our five star review system whereas five stars is you know we like it four stars is it's awful and it's you know never should be used for, for anything three stars is now you're trying to prove a point to somebody two stars is now you're just disgruntled and trying to bring somebody's rating down and one is just you're crazy so like that it's like it that it has become so skewed it's either five stars or nothing that getting it and interpreting feedback is a is a difficult process as well because of some of these things at least in my in my opinion that's what i've seen in a lot of these rating systems it's either five stars or nothing does that cause problems like as you're trying to get feedback from folks like do you see more variants because there's still a person out there is like three is great like it's it's definitely a good thing like does anybody even do that anymore oh yeah no doubt <laughs> and, and if anything they've become even bigger crutches right and which is is, is somewhat dangerous um net promoter score now is a huge crutch for companies around well how 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 well are we liked and how likely is someone to do business with us again 
the problem with net promoter score now is though is 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 that it's been bastardized so that no company even sends a net promoter score email to a customer who's already compliant. <laughs> they only send the net promoter score emails to the companies that they they believe based upon their analytics and their data it, that has had a good experience is going to give them a 10. Well, so if you do that, you've completely bastardized the whole the whole process, right? And the purity of it is all gone. Yeah. So, um and and we 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 also just tend to want to believe what we want to believe, right? And and, and we ignore the things that don't that, that don't agree with our hypothesis, right? And so that's one of the real challenges, not only building products but in data, is that too often now, when the data doesn't agree or the or user validation doesn't agree with what we needed to say for us to move forward and for us to feel good about what we're doing and the progress we've made, then we just change. Then we just we just change the data. Or we just change the feedback to meet our own narrative. Yeah, well, and and when there's so much data available, you can pretty easily do that. I, I think back to my uh, MBA studies many years ago and i think you know there was a joke where it's like with enough analysis any idea sounds bad you know and that's i it's something that i've always taken to heart because you can always find a reason not to do something and yet the founders the most successful among us somehow break through that so you get these anecdotal stories and it just reinforces this notion of well just ignore the data then because some way you're going to find this negative and you should you should do it like that's the kind of stuff that we start to put front and center and we realize oh now data has started to navigate into some weird you know pseudo place where being data driven is not even real anymore so yeah yeah most things don't work right mm -hmm. most new products don't work and aren't successful most new companies don't work and aren't successful so it's it's irrational to build a new product and to start a new company mm -hmm. because most of them aren't going to work so you're, you're you're pushing a boulder up a mountain right even by thinking that your thing is going to be different and your thing is going to work mm -hmm. and with that said we still need people to take those risks and to take on those challenges because the ones that do succeed often end up changing society they change the, the way that business happens they change you know they improve our lives right and so it, it's worth that and and at the beginning you have to pursue it sort of in the face of all rationality mm -hmm. and all things that that you know seem to make you know seem to make sense there is a tipping point that you get to then right when you realize Oh my goodness! We actually might be onto something here, and this actually this actually might work. And there's a there's a sort of threshold that you cross from this early validation of, geez, we have no idea if this is going to work or not, to then getting enough signals that it could work. Where now you you even change your thinking around it from we're in this sort of experimentation mode to now shifting into this sort of strategic execution mode. Because when you're in experimentation mode at the beginning, it's like, we don't know if this is going to work. We're just, you know, we have, we have a theory. And then when it, when it evolves from theory to actually being sort of practically viable, now you've got to quickly shift gears from being in experimentation mode to now being in execution mode. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips for people in, in recognizing when that transition point happens? Because where I want to take this next is... When when does when to decide it's not worth pursuing? 
So how do you how do you evaluate that you're at this point, this decision point of whether to really double down and 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 start to you know grow that or to say, you know what, nice try, but this idea is just not a winner and the, the opportunity cost is too high. Yeah, the, the the in the startup venture space, right? It's the it's the elusive traction, right? Which is the roll up of: Are you signing up with customers? Are you are you signing up customers cost effectively? Are you retaining them? Uh, right? You know, et cetera. And at what velocity is that happening? Yeah. And I think that that the challenge for for many is that they either aren't signing up that many customers. Or they're signing them up so sporadically that there's there's no evidence, right? That there's there's any sort of engine that if you put more fuel in the engine that it could go faster, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's just it's sort of sputtering, right? And so I think there's got to be in every startup with every product, there's got to be a point where you say, oh, and you can look back at the breadcrumb trail and say. Okay, we had we had ten customers, and then we had thirty, and then we had seventy, and now we've got one hundred and ten. So we're seeing a pattern here that if we figure out and we know why that pattern is happening and how we've acquired those customers and why we've kept them, right? And and this all goes back to that fundamental point of if you don't get and stay close to your customers, especially early, you're kind of screwed because the only way that you're going to know, right, what what that customer acquisition your history looks like and then what the path forward looks like is if you've stayed close to your customers yeah. right um, but that's really and, and then the threshold varies company to company depending on your product and the problem you're solving and the space that you're in <laughs> some companies when they acquire a hundred customers they they now have enough validation to know they should be able to get to a thousand and then they should be able to get to a ten thousand some other products and companies don't have that don't have that validation until they get to a couple thousand users, right? And so social media is a great example. If you build a social media product, you're not really relevant and you don't really have a business model until you get to a million users because because your business model is probably going to be based upon advertising and anything below that, the, the numbers really just don't work. So if you're a social media app and company and you've got 1,500 users on the surface, that looks okay and that sounds okay. If if that's the kind of product that you are, that's not nearly enough validation to now know you can go from experimentation mode to execution mode. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, that that's really interesting. And then I think that the parallels between like product companies versus service companies and, and other things like that are are much different. Like in a service company, you might need ten customers, you know, to to similar vein. It's like you may know, hey, you know, what we're doing here can scale, but as service businesses are often scaling more linearly and and you know don't have the same economic underneath them but it is fascinating to think of you know sales growth as a more relevant barometer of viability than any product specific you know uh, evaluation like just because your product's good doesn't mean your product's going to be successful and and that i think sales growth is a nice it, it combines the the cost and benefit of it to show viability in ways looking just at the product or, or buying into the hype of something um, just doesn't quite do without real, you know, dollars on the line. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it, it, it's a it's a given now that your product has to be good, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're not going to succeed if you build a, a fundamentally 
poor product. Um, with that said, there's lots of good products that have been built that have gone nowhere because now distribution is just as important as the product because if you don't figure out the distribution piece and the ticket a ticket into the game is you built a good product the 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 real differentiator is distribution mm-hmm. can you figure out how to create visibility for your product figure out what the right pricing you know model is how you're then going to convert customers right who become aware and somehow you know now have tried your product if you've got a demo or you've got some trial period or what have you um, and then and then you've converted them and then you've retained them um, because you know there's also you know it, freemium was a big thing you know a decade ago and it's still you know and it's still out there but freemium got got sort of bastardized too because it started out as really just being a pricing strategy mm-hmm. right and and a way to to acquire customers it then became a, a business model and freemium is not a business model because if you give away your product to too many people for free and it's too feature rich for what you give them for free enough aren't going to convert to being pay customers and then your business doesn't fundamentally work really i'm in evernote's a good example i'm an evernote premium subscriber because i like some of the premium features but evernote if you looked at it and said is it a successful product and company, the answer would have to be no, because they only convert like a little over 1% of their free users to pay users. Mm-hmm. And if you're and it, and, and I think my premium subscription is something like $6 a month, you, that's not sustainable, right? If you're only converting 1% of your users. So, you know, distribution, acquisition, and then monetization, if you, if you can't get those things right on top of having built a good product, it's kind of irrelevant that you built a good product. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting stuff. Like Evernote, I don't think most listeners would immediately say Evernote's not a successful company. They're, everybody knows who Evernote is. They know what it does. They know the product. But from a business perspective, it is a business model that is not necessarily as um, successful as their name recognition would have one believe. And that's that's an interesting um an interesting point, because at the end of the day, I mean, you found an organization, you found a company, a product, whatever type of organization, because you believe that you can you know, make money or achieve some goal. And, and maybe you love doing it. But typically you're looking to have some sort of monetarily driven success of some sort or making some sort of social um, impact or something like that. But but. You've got to be relatively confident to take on that risk, even despite some of the things we talked about earlier about how most ideas fail and how most ideas probably aren't that good to begin with. Like, so there's a lot in your way. And and I'll I want to give a little bit of perspective from from my vantage point. This is something that I haven't talked about much um, because I, I, I'm I am a founder. I founded a business. That when I first started uh, Algman Data Leadership, I thought I was going to create a consulting firm. I'm like, we do this data leadership stuff. I have, you know, this book and I and I have these ideas that I think are unique in the marketplace. And I still think that um, there's some uniqueness to, to the way I approach certain things with data. However, what I learned about very quickly is that by doing and creating, founding a data leadership company, I realized a couple things. One, I never get to do anything with data leadership because I'm too busy trying to create a company and I'm too busy thinking about cash flows. And I'm too thinking and thinking about taxes and insurance and all those things. So it's a big dream. But I'm like, but I can do this thing on my terms. And there's something to be said for that. And I, and I agree. 
But I quickly realized, you know what? I don't want to I don't want to create a big consulting for I just want to do consulting in the data leadership space. So I actually found my niche kind of doing subcontracting, working with other bigger firms and allowed me to focus. And this is where I realized, like, while I can be a founder, I don't think fundamentally I am a founder because I saw the fact that I love to do the work. I love to be in data leadership, solving these problems. What I didn't love to do was all the other stuff that a founder has to do. And so I realized, hey, I just want to get back to work. So I ended up taking a real job again because I learned that I didn't love all the things that were keeping me independent in the first place. So why not go and be in the fight, solving the problem, building a team, doing all this stuff day in and day out? So what I learned is that, yes, I could do it okay and could deal with those things, but didn't love it. So my question for you is why do you love it and what do you love about being a founder, working with other founders and and being in this space? And how would you help somebody who may be in a similar situation to what I was years ago and and thinking about going out on my own to take stock in whether or not that's a good idea or founding a company? How do you know if it's right for you? Yeah, I think that uh, it's a it's a great point in, in line of conversation. Um, I think being a founder and starting and having a, a company become commercially viable um, is the hardest professional thing that anybody can do um, because you have to wear so many hats and there are so many plates spinning spinning and there there is too much stuff to do in too little time, you know, you know, et cetera. So you, you, you have to be ruthless in your prioritization about what you're going to spend your time on at any given moment, because everything matters. Everything just doesn't matter equally in this moment. Right. Um, And, but I also think that starting a services firm, like your consulting firm Mm -hmm. versus a product company are also very different existences because what often happens with, and I I have a new book coming out around managing and growing a services firm. Mm -hmm. Um, what often happens when people start services firms is they're they're a craftsperson, mm-hmm. right? Like you were around data leadership. Sure. And then what happens is they then realize they if they're going to continue to be a craftsperson, their their services firm is going to be constrained and it's only going to get so big, and they're still going to have to do a lot of the work. Mm-hmm. Now, if if what they're most excited about is the work and applying their craft, that's cool. If they have visions of the firm growing and getting bigger, then they have to make the transition, just like we talked about a product company transitioning from sort of experimentation mode to execution mode. Mm -hmm. A founder of a services firm, if they want to grow the firm, they have to make the transition from craftsperson to business person, which means 80% of the time, they're probably doing nothing related to the craft. Yeah. And but that's the reality of it. If you want to grow a services firm, right, because you now you're going to hire other craftspeople to to do the work. And then your focus is going to be on, well, how do I manage the business and how do I grow the business, et cetera. Um, So I think people who start services firms in particular need to decide and need to be self-aware enough to, to, to ask themselves, do I want to be a craftsperson who just happens to have their own their own shop? Or do I want to own a very successful growing services firm? And I care more about that than I care about personally applying the craft. Yeah, I think that is an 
excellent point. And just having been in that decision, literally myself and in my career, um, I think you put it very fairly and very accurately uh, for someone. And, and I went through this journey the hard way, right? I thought I wanted to be a founder. I thought I like I check these boxes. I know I can do it. I have the risk profile. I'm willing to take these chances. I'm willing to to make the investment and, and to do it. And I have the the knowledge and background from from studies and and experience with small firms and and things like that. I'm ready to do it. And I wouldn't let it go until I knew I could do it, but didn't want to do it. And like it, and that was after I evolved it to that that kind of craftsperson firm to where I'm like, well, if I want to do this craftsperson type of of model there's better ways to do that. Like there's better ways for me to achieve those goals in that context. But what it left me with was a place where I could do what I really wanted to do as a thought leader in the data leadership space and, and do things like this podcast. Like we were talking about prior to the, to the show. It's like that to me was what turned out to be the most important thing, which I didn't think was the most important thing when I first started it out. When I first started it out, I thought, oh, I can create this business because this business needs to reach everyone. Well, I can reach everyone in ways that aren't just a business. And that's where I think, you know, something like a podcast where you can do it as a labor of love as opposed to a labor day in and day out for, you know, trying to, to make your monthly expenses. It's a different mindset. And sometimes I think our best work comes when we're just passionate about what we're doing for the sake of doing it well and, and making a difference versus creating that business. Because I was never willing to do that 80% of the time to just make the business function when I really wanted to be doing data leadership stuff. So I really appreciate your perspective on that um, because it's... Um, you know, it's something that I think a lot of consultants especially have this vision of, do I go independent? Do I want to do this stuff? And and there's ways to take it where you're not trying to create a whole business around it. And, you know, there is a place for, for independent work that doesn't have the, the same level of overhead. So what, you know, knowing all the complexities, knowing some of the challenges and the, and the likelihood of failure and all of it, why do you, why do you personally gravitate to it? Like, what is it about the, that journey and that um, challenge that exhilarates you. Yeah, I think it is. It is so multifaceted and multidimensional that it's it's kind of irreplaceable. Um, because it, it, you're just you're just not going to find another professional scenario that's going to challenge you to the level of trying to start and, and make a, a company successful um, as as being you know a founder um, it, it's um, and, and so I think the, the the challenge of it and the the, the 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 sort of unknown factor as part of it I think is it has always been super intriguing to me and it is to the to the clients that we have at AWH and, and companies that um, I'm on boards of and I advise, et cetera, that the, you can almost tell the, the, the founders who are, who are, who are at least going to have a shot at making it work versus the, those who, who probably aren't mm -hmm. the founders who have a shot at making it work, um, are, are so interested in the, in the mechanism 
of of it working and them figuring things out along the way and they put their egos on the shelf and they 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 don't care how many accolades they get they frankly don't even care how much money they make right as long as they can live right mm-hmm. they don't they're not that money motivated right and so i think that if you can find founders that that are consumed by the problem and then who who work in the best interest of the problem and the best interest of their team and in the best interest of customers and who put themselves at the end of the interest line those are founders and those are companies that have a chance of making it um, founders that are super egotistical and that are and that are very self-driven right from not from a motivation perspective but from a hey the spotlight's always got to be on me Hmm. that almost never ends and goes well because they're sucking all of the energy out of all of the other things and areas that they should be putting ahead of themselves does that make sense yeah it does and i just keep thinking about consumed by the problem i think that to me speaks volumes like you you cannot expect to go and create a successful company of any kind if you're just doing it to try to make a dollar you know you you have to believe in what you're doing and and to the point of you know in like such an intensity that nothing else will stand in your way because that's what it takes i mean that that has to be what it takes to 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 arise above all of those challenges to get it done you cannot you know expect that you're going to put in a 40 hour work week and make dinner every night when you are you know trying to do something that is this challenging and and you have to be driven in a way that that for most people just dollars won't do yeah and and if and if if it is the dollars that you're after those are going to come so far down the road from where your current existence is that, that it, it, it's 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 so far in the distance that you won't keep going and you won't have enough grit to keep going to see those dollars realize mm-hmm. because you know and, and you know what i say in in the book and what i say when when i talk to founders directly is you're going to go broke before you have any money and you make any money off of your company and and if you're and even if you raise investment right you you're you're going to pay yourself a decent salary but you're not going to get rich as the founder you know until you have some sort of of significant growth or till you have some sort of exit and you, you know, you get acquired, you know, et cetera. So anybody who does it for the money is, is, is just naive and misguided because that's never a good enough reason. And it's also never going to pay off for you in the way that you think it's going to, uh, because you're going to have to put in years of being underpaid and dealing with lots of things and lots of problems that you never ha- had to expect to deal with, that you're going to be highly underpaid to deal with and to solve. Yet, if you're consumed by the problem and adding value for people around the problem, that's what has to be enough to get you through it. Otherwise, it's, it's you know, the other things, the other sort of, you know, tangential things are not going to be enough to see you through it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and two, it's I bet there's many founders who have made it through to get the dollars to find that the dollars didn't give them all the happiness they thought they were going to get from it. And and at some point, you know, the diminishing marginal returns of that, um, if you didn't if you didn't achieve something through the work itself and the, and the creation of that um, that goes beyond monetary um, you know, riches, then you're probably not going to find that is a 
uh, you know, will have been worth that all that effort for all those years. Like to your point, where you've been grossly underpaid. Um, yeah, it's actually interesting. That I think a lot of people believe that you know when a founder has a company that that succeeds and and, and does become wealthy, that somehow they just want to get to a point where now they just want to walk away and they just want to like manage their money. <laughs> That's almost never the case because it was never about the money. And mm-hmm. even if they become wealthy, it, 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 they're not satisfied and they're not fulfilled now just managing their money. Right. Yeah. That's why they, be, that's why they become angel investors and that's why they get on company boards and that's why they get on nonprofit boards or they start foundations. Right. Because it's, it was never about the money. Mm-hmm. And we, even when they have it, it, it's not then about the money either. Right. They have to stay in the game. Right. And, yeah. and I think people have a little bit of a mis, you know, misnomer that somebody who, you know, accomplishes wealth is is doing it just so they can sort of kick back and, and you know, manage their money. Most people don't. Most people. That's true. Now they have to manage their money. But most people then look for other opportunities to stay in the game, mm-hmm. not just sit back and manage their money. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, it makes good sense. And it also, it, it also highlights a risk too, of when you do make it and you've gone public, for example, and you, you may very well lose control of that thing that you have been putting everything into for so long, you know, it, at what cost does that come sometimes? I know there's a lot of folks out there that regret having sold out because they couldn't find that next thing to keep them in the game. Yeah, it, it is. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it, if you're a company that, that takes investment capital, you are going to give up some equity, and you you are likely going to end up not having control over the fate of the company that you started. Mm-hmm. And and you know that's hard for some founders, and and but. You know, there's also lots of founders who start companies and they get them through that experimentation phase. And then when the company needs to go into the execution phase, sometimes the board of that company then looks at that founder and says, you don't have the right skills to take this company to the next level. And the founder finds themselves on the outside of the company that they started looking in. And is it is it bad? I don't I don't know that it's bad because I think if 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 that's what the company truly needed to continue to grow and succeed, then the board has an obligation to work in the best interest of the company, Mm -hmm. not in the best interest of the people that started the company. And um, but unfortunately, in a lot of those cases, too, politics and egos and personalities also get involved. Um, Not, you know, not surprisingly, Mm -hmm. Um, there's still there's still, you know, flawed humans involved. Um, But I think that, that, you know, it's it's founders shouldn't be surprised if their company has some level of success that they then might be asked to take on a different role. They may lose majority ownership and equity of the company and their role moving forward is definitely going to evolve and it may diminish. And at some point they may no longer be part of the company that they started. And if a founder whose company is starting to have some success isn't aware of these things and isn't, you know, isn't mindful of these things. Those things can be very, you know, um, shocking um, when they happen, but that's, that's a founder who just wasn't aware of, you know, the process of, of how companies grow and how companies get capitalized, frankly, as they grow. Yeah. Well, and it, there's so many dynamics that we could spend hours actually talking about that. And, but it, it is, you know, to think about the life cycle and the, and the skills necessary to take companies through 
through different stages and 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 why it's important to be able to do so effectively and to remember you know there was a reason you created this company in the first place and to have achieved much of that and realized that for broad adoption and of uh, and full scale of of its full potential you need different skill sets at that helm and oftentimes i've heard from a lot of founders that they they really don't want that operational side they don't want to manage that business anyway because it's become something that has lost some of its luster of that journey from the early days i've heard so many people that have been involved for organizations for a couple decades and they always look back to those crazy lean years when it was such an adventure and they and they miss that because now the dynamics are much more muted yeah and that just reinforces and i agree with you and that just reinforces that the period of time that should be the 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 worst as part of starting a company in people's memories right when they were sleeping at the office and when they were trying to figure out how they were going to make payroll the next week (laughs) and how they were going to figure out how they were going to you know make rent while also figuring out how they were going to spend money on marketing right and hire a salesperson and all these things those are the best times those are the times that every founder remembers fondly and and they almost want to go back and recreate those times because if you get to the point if you're fortunate enough to get to the point where now a company is becoming managed and you've got professional managers involved. That's a very different culture. That's a very different type of company than in the lean years when you're just trying to make it through the day to show up tomorrow to see what you need to do tomorrow, you know, to, to show up the day after that. Right. Yeah. But that's what everybody talks of fondly. Right. Because it's 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 the it's it's that thrill and it's that sort of you know, energy, you know, rush of, we don't know if this thing is going to work, but my goodness, we got to show up one more day to try to make it work. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's and it's inspiring to think about those days and being in that when anybody who's had that experience, even for a short period of time, can relate to that and understand, even though it feels paradoxical when you talk about it's it's so true that sometimes what are seemingly objectively the worst of times are actually the most precious times in the growth of of that organization. So um, it's really interesting. While we still have a couple minutes i would love to hear a little bit more about icy stars and what precipitated uh creating that organization if you would yeah so icy stars is a workforce development program um headquartered in chicago um, that's been around for 21 years now um and I came across, I'm in Columbus, hmm. and I came across the program probably six years ago now, maybe maybe a little bit longer than that. And uh, I loved it. And they were only operating in Chicago at the time. Hmm. And so I got to know the program, and then we, we launched, we brought it in launched to Columbus and, and launched it in Columbus as the first expansion location outside, outside of Chicago. And we essentially train underemployed adults in digital skills. So they learn how to write code. They learn how to become project managers. Um, they learn how to become software testers, etc. And, uh, you know, it, it's confirmed for me that skills training is the great equalizer and democratizer. If you have monetizable skills, then, then your life trajectory is is very different than if you don't have any you know skills that you can monetize you know commercially, um, and and it also levels the playing field. So we have a heavy focus on on. Uh, 
minorities. We have a heavy focus on um, women, uh, on veterans and people that, that, you know, are are maybe not dealt the same hand, you know, that some people are, are dealt and they need some they need some access. Um, and so, you know, we're very intentional on making sure that that we're training a diverse group of people and um, and that we're giving them the access and, and awareness that they need to, to try to you know fulfill their potential, and so it's just been a super fun thing to be a part of. Uh, and you know, I think that uh, you know we we need to do more, frankly, because I think that there we, we have a huge gap now um, economically and societally that. And, you know, and I used to say that it was between, you know, those that that went to college and those that didn't go to college. And we still need vocational skills training, you know, for those that don't go to college. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure that that the college part even needs to be exclusionary because there's lots of people graduating with degrees from college that they can't they can't monetize those degrees. They're, they're underemployed uh, and they've got huge debt. So yeah. we, we need, we need non-traditional skills training and educational pathways that allow many more people to be able to um, succeed professionally and to sort of fulfill their potential than, you know, we currently have right now. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and and I appreciate you taking the time and, and spending that um, effort on, you know, helping to create that and connect to those folks. That, that need those skills and, and may not have uh, other avenues to get them. And so I think that's a it's a great service that you provide. I've been aware of the organization in Chicago for some time. So it's great to see that um, expanding. So, um, Ryan, we're out of time. So I want to thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate you coming in and sharing your wisdom with us on the show. Anthony, enjoyed it very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Fantastic. And thank you for watching or listening today. You'll find links and more information about today's topic in the show notes. Subscribe to our show on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Algman.com to learn more about Algman Data Leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. 